Well, we're closing off our series in Romans, and we're going to spend a couple weeks more in Romans, and then we'll, uh, this week and next, right, Brandon, this week and next in Romans? Yep. Romans is, Brandon is keeping us in order these days. And then the next week, we start our Christmas series. So I just want to encourage you, uh, invite your friends and family to that time. I think people are a little more receptive in the Christmas season, so um, let's, let's make sure that we reach out to them in this time. Uh, and you can invite them before Christmas as well. Any week works. Seriously. Uh, you know we'll treat them well. Uh, so the whole letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome can be summarized in two words. Does anybody remember those two words? In Christ. Now, I wish I would have heard a, in Christ. Could we do that just to make me feel better? So Romans can be summarized in what two words? In In Christ. Christ. Very good. That's right. Uh, Romans is all about what it means to be in Christ. Or you could say the whole letter is about our identity in Christ. If you're wondering, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Romans is a great book to read, or a great letter to read. We said in the first part of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, it's about what the gospel does in us. And then there's this verse that connects the second part of Romans, which is 12 through the end of the letter, which tells us what the gospel does through us. And here's the verse that connects those two themes, what the gospel does in us to what the gospel does through us. The, uh, the connector there... The link is Romans 12, 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the rest of the letter, chapter 12 through the end, again speaks to what we do outwardly in our lifestyle, through our actions, because of what Jesus has already done inwardly. Uh, It is all in view of God's mercy. When Paul says that, in view of God's mercy, he's summarizing all of what's been said in chapters 1 through 11. We don't work for and with Jesus. We don't carry out good deeds on his behalf. We don't witness on his behalf. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles to earn his approval. We do those things because we already have it. You see, because we can't pray enough. You don't pray enough. And you don't read your Bible enough. And you don't witness enough. And you aren't kind enough. And you aren't committed to your spouse as much as you should be. You know why? Because there is no amount of good we can carry out in our life that is enough for God. It's only because of what he's already done that we can do anything truly in his name. Otherwise, it's just done out of a selfish desire to feel like we matter to God. It's done out of insecurity. If we don't understand chapters 1 through 11, we can't understand 12 through the end of the letter. Jesus has been good on our behalf. So when you feel like, I don't pray enough, the worst thing that you can do is, you know, grit your teeth, uh, you know, uh, uh, get on your knees, put your head to the floor and think, I'm going to just pray harder. The idea is we turn the enemy on his head and we say, no, that's right. I don't pray enough. But I have one who is enough on my behalf. See, a child who spends time with their father because they know their father is crazy about them on their best days and their worst days, the intimacy there is much greater than the child who spends time with their father and hopes to do things just the right way so dad will continue to spend time with them. 
Chapters 1 through 11 helps us understand how good our Father is. And then chapter 12 through the end helps us understand how to walk that out. Amen. Specifically, as we move into chapter 12, we've read about, or as we moved into chapter 12, we read about what it means to be unified in the church, that the gospel alone unifies the church, which again is a sub-point on the gospel working through us. And specifically, the gospel unifies us by using our gifts so that we might build one another up in love. And as we do this, another point that was made at the end of chapter 12 is uh, the gospel unifies the church. We use our gifts to build one another up so that we can love our enemies. And when we do that, that actually restores God's broken creation that was meant to be perfect and that was designed for us to walk right next to him before Adam and Eve fell and then we followed suit. So when we, when we practice the unity of the body of Christ and we walk that out through the, the working out of our spiritual gifts, which then loves our enemies out on the streets, society is transformed. And then this discussion continued through Paul's divine inspiration in chapter 13 as he shows the church how to relate to the government in a way that's appropriate. More specific, again, how the unity of the church loving one another through the use of our spiritual gifts out of love, loving our enemies, which then carries out to loving our society, loving authorities. It's a radical love that we're called to. Our community should be transformed by Christians, not only inwardly, that is spiritually, but also outwardly, physically. You should literally be able to see in our neighborhoods the work of the gospel. It should be an inward transformation through salvation, yes, the preaching of the gospel, but the gospel should make schools better, it should make hospitals better, it should make nursing homes more friendly and more hospitable, it should, make, uh, it should allow those who are orphaned to find a home, those who are abused to find a refuge, those who have no hope and are on the other side of the law, convicted felons and murderers and all the rest should find hope and healing in the body of Christ. And this restoration project that God's called us to, specifically here as it, as it applies to the government, can be worked out as we answer two questions. It says in Romans 13, 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And the NLT, another translation, says submit instead of be subject. They both mean the same thing. So, the first question in understanding the Christian's relationship to authority, government to be specific, why should we submit to our government? You know, many of you, you are in the generation where you could care less about the government. All right, you, you look at politics, you look at all that, and you think, man, this isn't making a bit of difference in our culture. You've completely given up. You're cynical. And I just want to say that's the wrong attitude. And we're going we're gonna to read the attitude that Christ would have us uh, adopt in this passage. So why should we submit to our government? Paul tells us why, but first I want to take a look at what Christian author John Stott explains in terms of the different ways in which the church has related to the government throughout history. So we can kind of get a frame of reference on what the right one is, the one that Paul's speaking to here. Uh, there's a Rastianism which is where the state controls the church. 
And we see that way back in history through the Renaissance and, and elsewhere. We see theocracy where the church controls the state. We see Constantinism, which is a sort of compromise where the state favors the church and this, the, this, the church then caves and compromises in order to keep the state's favor. And then there's partnership. This is where the church and state recognize that each has a God-given role in society and they support one another where appropriate. They're not enemies, but they work together. But they also understand that each has a unique role that the other doesn't. And that's what Paul has in mind here is this partnership idea of the church's relationship to the government. It says in Romans 13, 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So the first reason we should, we should submit to the government, according to this verse, is God invented government. Do you know he invented it? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority. There is no authority except that which God has established. No matter how dark or light that authority may seem, God and his sovereignty allowed that authority to exist. So as it's instituted by God, his sovereignty holds it together, and that gives us great peace. Because no matter how it gets, we know he's in, no matter how bad it gets, we know he's in control. Paul then goes on to encourage the church at Rome in verse 2. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is serious. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, servants, agents of wrath, bringing punishment to the wrongdoer. So the second reason why we should submit to the government is it's the wise thing to do. It's wise. So Paul says that if we're doing right, we don't need to fear. He says that rulers bear the sword, according to, according to verse 4, to punish the wrongdoers. So, so fines, uh, uh, imprisonment, and even death are the sword that Paul's referring to here. And it's to... Uh, to provide accountability and to minimize crime because without it, our selfish nature, we, we would destroy ourselves, right? So we should submit to government because it's both instituted by God and because it's wise. This is common sense to you so far. We're kind of in the common sense zone. What, what comes in the next few minutes might be new to some of us. The final reason we should submit according to these first couple of verses is submitting to the government is fair. It's fair. In verse 6, it says, this is also why you pay taxes. Let me just pause here at that, that break in the sentence. I believe, based on the context here, what was happening is this early church was thinking, well, now we have this eternal destiny. We have this new kingdom in Christ, so we don't need to obey the laws, the ones we don't like. So if I don't want to pay taxes, I'm not going to pay taxes. If I don't like this or that law, I'm not going to obey it. If there's an aspect of government that's not honoring to God, then I'm going to be dishonoring to the government. I mean, I, I don't know that. I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I think that's why Paul took the time, or that's why the Holy Spirit used Paul to take the time to write this to this early church and then also to us. So he says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants 
This is Rome, folks. I mean, we're talking about the Colosseum, Christians fed to the lions. Very cool, very cruel to the Christian church. They're God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe, t- if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So this is just very simple, basic. The government works to make society better. We benefit, so we pay. Right? So you pay your taxes. You serve in whatever ways you can. But many of you are asking yourself right now, but Chris, what about when the government's not honoring God? What about when the government is downright cruel and oppressive? And there might be a whole bunch of other questions that you are thinking right now, but a sub-question under this on uh, why should we submit to government is, is our submission to governing authorities absolute? I think all of your questions can be summarized in that. In other words, is our submission to government unconditional in nature? Should we always submit no matter what? Do we submit to authorities that are engaged in criminal or sinful activity? What about Hitler or Stalin or North Korea's submission to Kim Jong-un? Do we submit to those kind of rulers? The weight of this commandment intensifies when we're asked to uh, carry out laws that are contrary to God's law such as the value of every person, regardless of race, religion, sex, physical health, and so on. Paul had this in mind when he wrote the letter to the church at Rome. He says again in 13.7, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And I believe this sentence had Jesus' words in mind. In fact, I think what Jesus said relating to obeying the authorities, if you look at various passages in the New Testament, it was embedded in the minds of the early church, what Jesus said. You see, in Matthew 22, uh, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus because they want to kill him. They want to get rid of him because he's stirring things up. He's taken away their influence and their power, etc. He's a threat, so they're trying to find a way to trap him in his words. So they ask him, do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says in Matthew twenty two twenty one, 21, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And that is essentially what Paul is saying here in 13, 7. And this would have been countercultural. In an era where the pantheon was king, that is the set of Greek gods that, were, that you were legally obligated to worship, uh, of which the emperor was, was considered part of this Greek pantheon of gods. Okay, and what Jesus is saying there is, hey, you give, and I think Paul's saying this as well, you give back to Caesar, you give to the ruler, to governing authorities what is theirs, and you give to God what's God's. I think it's good to remember here as we talk about emperor worship and such, we can glorify our political leaders, can't we? To some of you, man, it irritates me to no end. During the Obama administration, he could do no wrong even when he was, clearly, he was clearly advocating things that were against uh, biblical principles. And then some of you, Trump can do no wrong even when his words are caustic and, and motivate whole demographics of people to anger and rage. We are to have a prophetic voice in culture. 
We are to think, what does the kingdom of God say about this political issue? What does the kingdom of God say to immigrants who are looking for hope? What does the kingdom of God say to a church that's been torn on political lines and is maybe more, uh, uh, more racially in trouble in terms of disunity than it has been in decades? So we're told both by Paul and Jesus to give to governing authorities what's due them, and that's not our worship. It's not our worship. Barack Obama is not our savior. Donald Trump is not our savior. Far from it. Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel should be what we labor in. Do you know our hope, when we talk about our hope being in Christ, our hope is that thing that we can't wait to get. I just got a new cell phone in the mail. You know, and I'm not really that excited about cell phones anymore, uh, but I know many of you are. You know, you're waiting, man, I ordered the new iPhone or whatever, and you're excited. You're thinking about, I'm excited when that phone comes because it's going to change my life. Probably not as much as you think it's going to change your life, but you think it's going to change your life. We are to be excited, and we're going to find this out as we continue to read this chapter, that our hope is in Jesus restoring all things. And that's to be what gets us out of bed in the morning. We're to be excited about that. That's to motivate us. It's to move us. It's what we think about spending our money on. Not that thing that we found online. It's that thing that we want to spend our time on. Not that hobby that we can tend to obsess over. The kingdom of God and its coming. That it's near that Jesus is going to restore this earth and restore all things. That is our hope. That is what we should be excited about happening and looking forward to. Not who wins an election. Do we catch this sentence, though? If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So obviously we're not to respect or honor sinful behavior. We need to read this, though. If respect, then respect. In, uh, uh, if honor, then honor. We need to read those verses through the previous verses in Romans 13 that we've already read. Verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. In verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for what? For your good. So if God's servant, the governing authorities, are not operating in such a way that it is, it is performing good for the people of that society and evil is being celebrated, then we don't fall in line with that government. We don't fall in line behind sin. A good example that we can read about is in Acts chapter 5. I'll let you read about this on your own because believe it or not, I'm already horribly behind. Believe it or, I mean, you guys, I know that's a shock to you uh, that I can get a little carried away with this stuff sometimes. Uh, but where Peter is told by Jewish authorities to stop preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. And Peter says that believers must obey God rather than men. So if we're told we can't share the gospel, we are obligated to civil disobedience. So the gospel gives a clear basis for civil disobedience. If the state is governing in such a way as to commend what God forbids, then civil disobedience is required. And likewise, if the state forbids what God commends, then we must disobey the state. For instance, if the government were to require this church to officiate same-sex unions, 
we would disobey that law. Likewise, if the state demanded that we provide flyers for abortion clinics, we would refuse. But the other side of the coin, hypothetically, of course, if the government demanded we not allow those same-sex romantic relationships to enter our church, we would disobey that command and openly and lovingly welcome them into the arms of Christ. And likewise, those who had participated in abortion would be welcomed and not condemned. And if the state were to say that racism is dead in this country, then we should have a prophetic voice and say, no, it's not. And even in the church, we should say it's alive and well and have a prophetic voice there as well. But, you know, our biblical relationship to the state is a complicated one. It really is. On one hand, we're to honor the state, even honor, not follow, but honor the state even when they disobey God. That is, even when the state punishes the good and protects the evil under law. I mean, for example, Joseph was a prime minister of sorts. He was like the prime minister of Egypt. Second in command, very much involved as an authority. And yet they gave themselves to pagan worship as a nation. Another example along these lines is the prophet Jeremiah who counseled Judah to surrender to the cruel and evil Babylonian nation. So Christians are not to show disrespect even to foolish, non-God-fearing nations. Certainly the government in context to the church at Rome was evil and actively promoting things that God hated, but they were commanded here to be respectful of their government. Do you hear me? Do we hear this? But on the other hand, believers are to courageously and respectfully disobey when necessary. We're to disobey civil authority when the authorities are demanding that we disobey God. Daniel and his crew faced the lion's den, and they were very much involved in government, and they would not bow down to an idol. They obeyed up until they were commanded by law to disobey God, and they simply wouldn't do it. Hebrew midwives also disobeyed the Pharaoh when commanded to kill infant baby boys, didn't they? So in summary, we respect and honor our authorities, but we do not engage in evil in the process. We're always to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So if you buy in too much to one party or another, you have lost your prophetic voice. I'm just going to say that straight out. If you've bought into one party or the other, lock, stock, and barrel, you've lost your prophetic voice. If the right can do no wrong in your eyes, you've lost your prophetic voice. It's filled with sinful people. Just ask any politician you know. If you've bought into the left, lock, stock, and barrel, then you've lost your prophetic voice. So how should we submit to the government? Get down to the nitty-gritty here. We've covered why. It's ordained by God, even governments we don't agree with. Ordained by God, and we are commanded to honor and respect them. Not fall in line behind sin but to honor them. But how do we submit to the government? Again, back to verse 1, then we're going to jump to verse 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. There's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 5, therefore it's necessary to submit to these authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. In other words, we submit not just to protect our own hide, but because we're doing it out of honor for God. 
So how to submit first? Submit according to conscience, not fear of punishment. You see, because if I submit out of fear of punishment, you know what that means, right? You know what that means. If I submit just simply because I'm afraid of the punishment that may result from my behavior, then it's all about me. I'm not honoring God. I'm just honoring the flesh. I don't want to suffer. And when the government commands me to disobey God, then I'm most likely to compromise my faith because, again, I want to save my own skin. Imagine Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II Germany, writer and pastor who was arrested and eventually executed because of his faith and also because of his participation in the plot to kill Hitler. He was a law-abiding citizen only until it required him to passively give in to hatred and genocide, and many pastors in that time in Germany did to save their own skin because they were submitted according to punishment, fear of punishment, not conscience. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer valued submission according to Christian conscience over submission out of fear. We are also to submit out of respect and honor for those in authority. We're to submit out of respect and honor for those in authority. Let me just back up a little bit on this point, submitting according to conscience, not fear of punishment. I feel like I need to mention this. Oftentimes when a law changes, like when, uh, it, it, when biblical marriage was assaulted by our culture, that's not the only issue, but it's a big issue. When that was assaulted, you found Christians on social media coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden compromising their values. Why? Why? Because of the, punish, the, the punishment or social reaction was too much for them to bear. And they were obeying out of fear of punishment versus conscience. Likewise, when you're in a group of people and uh, let's say that someone is talking about uh, something that our president has said that is very caustic towards a group of people. And you're with a group of others, and you don't want to bring up the counterpoint that what was said was out of line, was not fitting for a leader, and not honoring to Christ. Kingdom first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So we submit also out of respect and honor for those in authority. Again, we see this in verse 7, uh, which we read just a moment ago. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We can show respect even to uh, evil governments, which I don't believe our government held a candle in terms of their depravity to uh, many of the governments we read about in the Bible, Rome included. Although I think we're pretty far gone. I don't think we're as far gone as Rome. If you study Roman culture, I don't think we're as far gone as uh, Babylon under the leadership of evil king Nebuchadnezzar. He was oppressing and killing God's people. And in Jeremiah 27, we read that God allows him to have power for a while, but we can rest assured, no matter how bad it gets, that we don't have to seek revenge. We don't have to somehow justify the balances of power. Because justice belongs to God. And finally, and most importantly, 
we submit for the good of society. In verse 8, and this might be the most important, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So it's easy to read these, these verses as simply a milk toast generic call to uh, love your fellow man. You know, like some kind of corny Christmas carol or something. But when it commands us to love our neighbor, we must connect this to the larger discussion that Paul's having to our, uh, he's having about our relationship to the state in verses one through seven. So the connection then uh, between chapter 12, the last part of chapter 12 that we read last week, verses 17 through 21, about loving our enemies, and 13, one through seven, which is about our relationship to governing authorities, our relationship to the state is found in verse 21 of Romans 12, which we read last week. And this is pretty, this is pretty radical. Romans 12, 21. Overcome evil with arguing, with the right political party, with making sure everybody in the world understands your convictions and that you're right and they're wrong. Is that what it says? Does it say that we overcome evil by diagnosing the, every problem in our society? It says we overcome evil with good. It's the long way. It's the sacrificial way. It's the way of Christ, who didn't cut any corners, but he laid his life down for us. And I'm pretty sure we fell short of his standards. Many believers, myself included, find it easier to rant politically online or argue than to perform good deeds in Christ's name to bring kingdom values into society. It's easier to diagnose than it is to serve. So practically, our good deeds are to pay back our debt in Christ that we can never pay back. It's a continual debt, and it says in 13.8 again, let no debt remain outstanding, so pay your taxes, all that stuff, give to everyone what you owe, except the continuing debt to love one another. So we should be invested in our communities, neighborhoods, and cities. We should be seen as great doers of good. You overcome evil with what? Good. It should be said of us, you may disagree with their theology, but you cannot disagree with that group of people's impact on our community. We are to be about the work of recreating our broken world both physically and spiritually. Our culture is obsessed and idolizes arguing. CNN and Fox News are making billions because of this. And they've got us all spinning like this. You know what we need to do? We need to get out there and share the gospel. We need to get involved with safe families and reach across uh, racial and ethnic and economic divides. We need to defend our black and Latino brothers and sisters. We need to get out there and be agents of good, and that will speak volumes. This tiny church will change this whole community if we become doers of good instead of diagnosers of bad. Amen? Let's stop with the diagnostics and engage with the solution, and the solution is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And to do this, and I'll go ahead and write up the, invite up the worship team. 
uh, we need the right perspective to live radically, to love our neighbor. We need the right perspective. We're told how to receive this right perspective from the Lord in Romans 13, 11. It says, and do this, and this then is remember, it's we are to love our enemies, which carries out into our relationship to the government. Because sometimes what Paul's assuming is your enemy is going to be the government. In Rome, their children were being oppressed. Their friends and neighbors oftentimes were being executed. And Paul's saying, still, do good to these people. In Babylon, when... uh, God's prophet Jeremiah wrote to these Jewish exiles in Babylon, which was incredibly wicked. He he told them, I want you to be a force of good in Babylon. I want you to bring them prosperity. And Babylon forcibly deported these Israelites. Doesn't that seem like an impossible task? For God says, do good to these evildoers. Because the whole context here is, if we look at all of Romans 12 and 13, is it, the idea that it's so easy to give ourselves to demonizing the evildoer instead of evil. And whenever we do that, whenever we say, that politician is the problem, he's evil, we need to get rid of him and we'll solve the problem And we give ourselves to bitterness and judgment and backbiting and gossip and not finding out all the facts and just saying whatever's on the top of our mind. You know what that does? It fuels bitterness and hatred and rage and it fuels the fires of hell and disunity. Because if God can tell the Israelites in wicked Babylon, you do them good because through that they might see your good deeds and repent of their evil. If the Holy Spirit can, through Paul, tell the Romans, in, or the Christians rather, in Rome, I want you to serve these people who, will ult- who ultimately crucified me. I want you to serve them and do them good. Those who are oppressing your children, who are enslaving you, I want you to do them good. And in that way, you'll overcome evil. We need the right perspective and do this. So we do these things, these impossible things. How can you do good to these people who are hurting you? We do it by this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. See, our slumber is the time before we knew Christ. And we thought all the solutions were out there. If we can just fix our circumstances, then we'll be able to, uh, to fix this this gaping hole in us that tries to find fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure and joy and everything around us. And Jesus says, no, the answer is the gospel. We understand our present time. We see the relationship between the world that God has established around us and the evil in it and his eternal kingdom. And we bring the eternal into the temporal by doing good, living obedient lives regardless of the cost. And we do this in the present time. In verse 12, the first part, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The Lord is going to bring, he's going to bring goodness and righteousness and justice back. We live for that day. That's our hope. 
So it says in verses 12 through 14, uh, the second part of verse 12 through 14, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So we ask ourselves, since I know Jesus is coming back and establishing the new earth, the first thing I want to do is pray daily, Lord, fill me with joy and excitement over the fact that the day of the Lord is coming. He's coming back. You know, we don't naturally look forward to that, do we? We don't naturally we think about it. We think about paying the bills. We think about getting the house. We think about strengthening our investments. That's what we look to. That's what we can't wait to happen. But our hope, what we're truly excited about, defines where we really look for salvation. Is our salvation in that material relation, that material thing, that relationship, that investment, that job opportunity, that accomplishment in school, that accomplishment in sports? Or is it in the day of the Lord that he's coming back? Naturally in the flesh, we don't look forward to that day, but we can start by praying, Lord, this isn't natural for me, but I want you to build in me an excitement for your coming. And all will be well with us. So we ask, Lord, since you're coming back, how am I to view immigration? How am I to respond to race riots? How am I to uh, give myself sacrificially? Maybe it's through safe families. Maybe it's through IFI. I think of Rebecca Moret and Jess Warner who are involved in Ohio Right to Life. Rebecca Moret talking to women who are considering abortion. She's not just condemning it. She's reaching out. She's bringing the gospel of hope to the sin. Why would we not bring the solution and only talk about the problem? They're drowning over there. Yep, they're all drowning. Let's talk about how they're drowning. Let's talk about how many are drowning. Let's talk about precisely what, what put them in that situation instead of throwing them a, a life preserver. Jess Warner works for Ohio Right to Life. When you get in conversations, speak to how the church and you personally can serve and address the issue. Refuse to simply diagnose, but be a part of the gospel solution. We live knowing the night is nearly over and the day is here. Where is our hope? Where is our hope? If we diagnose, our hope is in this life. If we bring the gospel to this life, our hope is in the next in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, at this time, we're going to take our offering. Uh, also, if you're considering baptism, please come talk to me uh, in the back there. Again, we have clothes for you, towels, all that good stuff. Uh, let me pray for our offering here. Uh, don't forget to write down your information. If you're new with us, throw it in the, the basket. Also, uh, uh, your prayer requests, write those down on the card as well, and we'll be sure to pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, we know we all fall short of this message. I mean, my goodness, reading this chapter this week, I just saw how much I diagnose instead of bringing the gospel to, to the broken parts of our culture. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the day of the Lord, that the night is nearly over. All of this garbage is almost over, and the light of Christ is coming. The day is coming, Lord, and we want to live for that day. We want that to fill us with great hope and expectation to, Lord, where we're bubbling over with hope in our words and with our actions. 
And Lord, we pray for uh, the gifts of this church that you would use it for the advancement of your kingdom as we give to you sacrificially through our offering. In Jesus' name, amen.